Welcome to The Land Behind, a photography podcast hosted by myself, Peter Holliday. Join me in dialogue with both emerging and established photographers, artists, theorists and academics as I seek out new and different perspectives concerning the relationship between perception and place. As a podcast dedicated to cultivating a deeper awareness of the cultural, historical and personal horizons of the paths we follow, the land behind is a journey into that wild hinterland of thought that lies underneath the world before our eyes. It is an invitation to look more closely at the background so that we may learn to see better what is already visible to us. As a photographer myself, I studied at the Glasgow School of Art before continuing my artistic training in Finland. It therefore feels only appropriate to introduce this podcast by returning to the city of Glasgow to speak with the documentary photographer and lecturer, Simon Murphy. In my wide-ranging conversation with Simon, we discuss the landscape of Govan Hill as a crossroads between different ways of seeing, not least between photographer and subject. During our conversation, it was interesting to learn how Simon approaches the strangers he photographs in the streets of Govan Hill. We also reflect on the photographer's responsibility in representing the face of another and consider the gift of vision itself. I'd meanwhile like to thank my dear friend, a New York-based artist, Leander Mayanardist Knust, for providing the music you can hear in the background, as improvised using his very own self-built banjo during a sailing voyage upon the Arctic Ocean. So, without further ado, my conversation with Simon Murphy now begins. Simon Murphy, thank you for taking the time to speak with me this evening. You're very welcome, Peter. Great to be here. It's my pleasure. With the Glaswegian landscape in mind, you've previously said, and I'm paraphrasing you slightly, photographing a place isn't just about the people who already inhabit a landscape. What constitutes a place are also those people that come into an area, or those faces that pass through an area. And so my first question for you is, how important has it been for you throughout your project to represent the world of Govan Hill as the site of a common dialogue between different ways of seeing? Yeah, well, the place... Govan Hill in many ways is the perfect place to bring together a project with a common and wider reaching dialogue. Govan Hill is a very, very small area in the south side of Glasgow in Scotland. It's less than a mile squared and traditionally it was a point of arrival and it still is today. So people coming to Scotland for the first time tend to arrive in places like Govan Hill. And Govan Hill itself is estimated that there's 88 languages spoken so in many ways, that's a microcosm, you know, of just a, a wider world. It represents many places around the world, even the world itself. And the images might strike a chord with even those who haven't set foot in the place. And so when you use the term point of arrival, uh, you're referring to Glasgow as a port. And not just that way, you know, there's many ways to get to a place. But when people came, I suppose, traditionally to, to Scotland, they're either going to arrive in Glasgow, maybe Edinburgh, places like that. But Govan Hill is very close to the river and people tended to move there. And then as years progressed, it would, they would widen out and go to the suburbs. So it's the kind of urban area in Glasgow, in the south side of Glasgow. And so why did you start making portraits in this particular area? Uh, convenience, probably. Um, at the time I was living there, 
when I went to college. And so a lot of my college assignments, I was given an assignment and it made sense just to photograph where I lived. That was the main reason when I first started, but that's, Govan Hill's been part of my life for 46 years, on and off. Uh, I've been photographing the people of Govan Hill for at least 23 years. Um, But it really started, the project started, I would say, in earnest around about 2017. About 20 years ago, when I was at college, I would photograph in Govan Hill. So I I made a lot of environmental portraits, a lot of street photography in Govan Hill. And some of those negs still exist. And some of them I threw out. And that was a silly thing to do. (laughs) And so why did you throw them out? I started working in photography and I just, I was moving house at the time and and there was this idea in my head that all of that work that I did at college was basically just to get me to the point that I'm at just now, a point of arrival as well in many ways. And so I got a job um, for the Herald newspaper. It's a job that I really wanted. And it just felt that everything leading up to that had done its job. And I wasn't thinking about archive and I wasn't thinking about what documentary photography really is, you know, and because it wasn't a project back then. It was just what I was doing for my, my college work. I mean, the truth of the matter is, a lot of that work might not be very good, but the legend of it exists. So when, when was this that you were working for the Herald? Started, started working for the Herald in 2004, 2005. Yeah. And so you've, you said that you lived in Govan Hill, but you no longer live there. So no. to what extent do you consider yourself either as an insider or an outsider? And do you think this question matters? It's a good question. Um, Suppose I don't really consider myself as an insider or an outsider. It might sound strange, but I don't have a strong belief in borders and I don't pay an awful lot of attention to barriers. I never have. I think to some onlookers, I think with my family connections, my history, over 20 years of living in the area, my daughters were born in Govan Hill and I'm always there. I think to those people, I'm an insider. But to others, because I don't live there now and I wasn't born there, I think they would consider me as an outsider. The question itself, it doesn't matter a huge amount to me. But at the same time, I think it's important to consider why it matters to someone else. I'm just thinking for those that it does matter too, I think it's important for them to consider why it matters to them too. And what is it about the south south side of the Clyde that originally inspired you, other than living there? And you grew up in Castle Milk, I think you said to me before. No, no, no. so I was born in Castle Milk, but I never grew up there. I I was only there for a year or two of my life. And I moved around an awful lot. Uh, My brothers, my sisters, we were in so many different houses, but it was always the south side of Glasgow. So I've stayed everywhere in the south side of Glasgow. So I am a south sider. So for me, the South Side is, is what I know. And so you, know, you, you described the South Side with the focus on Govan Hill as a point of arrival, but presumably it was also a point of departure as well. Um, well, maybe, but a lot of those people that came to Govan Hill moved further out of Govan Hill, but still the South Side of Glasgow. And, and that happened, I mean, Govan Hill's got a rich history of people arriving, you know, from, it used to be a joke, when I lived there in the 90s, it was joked that there was two sides of Govan Hill, Bengal and Donegal, and that was reflective of the Irish immigrants and those from, from Asia. But it's, it's still the same, but those people kind of, I suppose their lives change and move on in a sense, but replaced by new people coming in. So from Romania and Slovakia and Poland and, and all of these places. So it's still, it still is a point of arrival. Um, the interesting thing about 
you know, a place like Govan Hill is where it's not rich from a financial point of view. Um, it's very rich from a cultural point of view. And because so many different nationalities and cultures arrive there, then, do you know, that for me opened my eyes. I, I never really started traveling until my mid-20s, but I had that in my doorstep. And living there expanded my mind and it expanded my horizons beyond the place. And that, that's a gift. And what I find so interesting about those images is the humanity that's present within them. And when I look at them, I'm reminded of the 1930s street portraits of August Sander or the Great Depression images from Dorothy Lange. But I'm also wondering how photographers such as Thomas Annan, Oscar Marzaroli and Raymond Depardon have affected your perception as a photographer making work in Glasgow. How do you think your work fits within the Scottish tradition of photography and perhaps more importantly, the Glaswegian tradition of the fixed image? To be honest, I'm not sure. And I, I, th I think only time will tell. And I think it, it maybe needs time um, to, to determine whether this work has any last, lasting message or kind of resonates with wider issues. And you spoke before to me um, about the significance of Raymond Depardon. Well, I mean, I was well on the road to being a photographer. Um, I was a photographer. The work that really stood out to me, it was a book that he did called Glasgow, and it was only released maybe five years ago. So I had already been working as a photographer for 15 years and I had been doing my project for a long time. So it wasn't so much of an influence. But I think what it was about his work was that when I looked at it, and it's, they're incredible colour photographs, very different to mine. But there was something so alien about this world that he presented of Glasgow. But it was also at the same time so familiar because when he was in Glasgow around about 1980, I would have been four years old. And I remember even being four, what it was like to be pushed in a pram or held by my mum's hand, walking up and down these streets and looking like that. But at the same time, you know, when you look at the quality of life in Glasgow back then, it it just seems that things have changed an awful lot. What about Oscar Marzaroli? Marzaroli's work is incredible, and it, it's a it's such an important record of the place Glasgow. You know, to to be able to look at that in terms of inspiration, there's definitely there's definitely inspiration there. But what I would say is that that world of the kind of I mean, photographers work for a long time, don't they? Through decades. But the world that his photographs represent to me is maybe the kind of 60s and 70s. And that particular time period doesn't connect with me as much as the work that I saw from Depardon. But Oscar Marzaroli's body of work is, is much more expansive. You know, Depardon was doing, he was coming in um, as a photographer doing a commission for a newspaper. And it was limited, you know, and that book really represents most of what he did, whereas Marzaroli travelled Scotland and all over the place. So his work's much richer in that sense. And then it's also interesting to note that Marzaroli was originally born in Italy as well. Yeah. Depardon is um, French. So interesting. it's interesting so to the... consider that insider-outsider yeah. um, relationship yeah. as well. Yeah, that is interesting because I think Depardon would definitely be considered as an outsider, and he was. And I think he would consider himself that that way. He was coming to Glasgow and discovering and just um, reacting to what he saw. But I think if you ask Glaswegians about Marzaroli, I think he would be considered 100% Glaswegian. 
as an insider. So, well, I believe he came to Glasgow or Scotland at the age of two. Oh well. So, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, yeah, he he was yeah. Scottish. But you know, we're not necessarily fixed in one place, are we? That's an interesting point. And so, what makes you belong to a place? That is it birth that makes you belong, or is it experiences during the kind of pivotal parts of your life? I was speaking to you about this the other day, you know, in New York in April, there's this big parade, tartan parade, and it's basically like expat Scots and bagpipes and tartan and up and down, I don't know, Fifth Avenue or whatever. And all of those people are Scottish, you know, 100% in their mind, but there they are with the American dream. They've moved on, but Scotland, what is it about Scotland that is still in their hearts? They carry it with them. The place is inside them. The place is within you, as you said to me before. Yep. Yeah, I faced similar questions about what does it mean to be at home in my work as, uh, you know, a Scottish person who currently lives in Finland. There are people who aren't at home in the place of their birth at all. Yeah. So, yeah, what does it mean to be at home? Or what, and I almost think that perhaps the pursuit of home is a lifelong project. Yep. Yeah, many of the faces in your pictures are of the persons you meet in the street. And I find it interesting that you're now so familiar with the streets of Govan Hill that there are specific walls along these streets against which you tend to situate your subjects. And if there's one question that my audience probably wants me to ask you, it's the question of accessibility. So with reference to a particular portrait, I would please like you to explain how you break the ice with the strangers that you photograph and how you approach them. I truly believe that People read your intentions way before you open your mouth. And so for me, it's incredibly important. I've identified that it's so important to be open and honest with everyone that I approach. And, and I mean that in the sense of body language, being very open with my gestures and also with my intention when I have to speak, you know, be, being honest about that, what, why I want to photograph someone. I tend to photograph only people who have grabbed my attention. So there's something that I've identified in that person that I really respond to or that excites me. So that might be a haircut or it might be a coat that the person's wearing. It might be a certain character that they have on their face or it could be just a twagger, you know. And I see that and I just move, I just move up to them and I just politely ask if I can photograph them. Sometimes people might ask, well, why, you know, why, why do you want to photograph me? And if that's the case, if they do ask, then I tell them the very thing that drew me to them. And people respond to that. You know, they know that I'm being honest about that. They can tell. Sometimes it's not necessary to explain. Sometimes people just say yes. And I think that's part of that kind of um, the body language and and the speaking without words in the approach. And maybe that takes a bit of practice. I don't know. But I think you've got to go in with with very kind of clear I would use the word pure as well, pure intentions. So another thing is it's really important that my own mindset's in the right place. I've got to get into the flow of the streets. I've got to get my mind in that place where I'm kind of open to chance and what might present itself in front of me. So I'll give you an example. You were, you were asking for a specific example about approach. And there was, I was walking, I don't remember what street, but there was, um, a man that I spotted that had a, a suit on and he, he was carrying a clipboard. But there's a bit of a juxtaposition because he also had this Mohican and tattoos down his neck. I thought that was quite interesting. So I approached him and asked if I could 
photograph him? He said no. And so I spent a little bit of time. I, I tried to convince him why this might be a good idea. I showed him my photographs. Um, and he said no. And at that time, it just wasn't for him. But, you know, I'm okay with that because what I've learned is that a no is it's not always a, a no, I can't stand you, get away from me right now. Sometimes it's a no, I'm running for a bus or no, I'm not quite in the right frame of mind myself. Yeah, there's nothing personal about it. Exactly. Nothing personal at all. And it's important to remember that too. I think that's something yeah. that you learn more as you grow older though as well. Not just be, yeah. as being a photographer, but just being a human being in relationship with other human beings as well. And, yeah, absolutely right. And, and gaining more confidence as well, that no is not the end of the world. Well, that's it. So I left that man in great terms, you know, we, we had a nice conversation, maybe lasted about five minutes, and I left pictureless. But an interesting thing happened, and this is part of my kind of thing about mindset and being open. So I turned the corner. And I spotted these two young Pakistani girls coming out of a taxi. And they had big presents in their hand. They were going to some kind of party. Oh, yeah, I've seen this image, yeah. Have you seen it? So, so I walked over, and it turns out that their father was the taxi driver. And so I, I spoke to him, asked if I could make a photograph. He agreed, all good. But the point was, had I not spent time talking to that person who said no, and had I not spent time trying to just have a pleasant conversation anyway, then I would never have met those two young girls. When someone says no, sometimes that's enough to end it for a photographer, you know, for that day anyway. They just like, that's it, down tools, if they do take it personally. Or for some people, it's enough to end it for forever. You know, I'm just not going to pick up a camera again or ever ask anyone again. But it's amazing what that opportunity and then a turn of a, a corner led to another photograph that I'm really proud of. Absolutely. There's always something coming next. Some of my favourite images of yours are the ones that feature animals. I've got three pictures here that I've listed in my notes. And there's a girl that has a cat hanging around her neck. In, a, in another picture of a man called Lewis, he is holding what seems to be a parrot in his hand. And there's also a boy holding, well, what seems to be a ferret. What do these portraits that include animals tell us about what it means to be human? I've kind of learned and I've observed that taking care of animals is a really amazing way for young people to learn about life in general. You know, and I think that when people present their animals in a photograph, you can you can see the pride that they have, the care, the love, the adoration that they have for another being. And in that sense, you kind of see the best of them. You know, you see their the person's humanity because of the pride that they feel for this this animal that they, they take care of. But also I think that the animal takes the focus off the person as well, in a sense. So that person isn't being photographed alone, but they're being photographed with something else that they care about. So they're kind of getting through it together, you know, and that's what life's about. That's Life's about getting through things together. Community. Also on that, though, I'm just thinking about how we value pictures. I think generally we tend to love, or the pictures that we value most are pictures with people that we love rather than ourselves, unless you're a narcissist, right? But generally, you know, so an image of, of your parents or, or your animal, you know, those are images that we value as people. And you mentioned it was Eliza with her cat around her shoulders. I'll tell you a wee bit about that story. So 
I, I was about to give up for the day. Uh, it was one of those days, nothing was happening at all. And I was just about to pack the camera away. I was walking up Victoria Road and from round the corner, Eliza came with this cat wrapped around her neck like a scarf. I was just like, wow, that's amazing. Why she got a cat round her, round her neck? And, and I asked her, I said, that's amazing. Where are you going with that cat? She said, oh, I'm going to farm foods. So she was going shopping with the cat. Right. So I asked if her parents were nearby, so because I'd love to photograph her. And she told me where her mum was, and I went and spoke to her mum, and her mum agreed to the photograph. But she said to me, her mum said, you photographed Eliza before? And I said, really? When? And she said, you photographed Eliza with her sister, Samra. They were coming out of a taxi one day with big presents. And you came up and made a photograph of them. And I said, oh, my God. So that was three years before I had photographed Eliza. And this was me photographing her again with this animal. I got the film processed and I got some prints made up and I took them round and the mum was just over the moon. And Eliza was at school and she she said to me, you know, Eliza is just, you, you don't know what this is going to mean to Eliza. And I said, well, how do you mean? And she said, well, her cat actually went missing and she never had any photographs of her and her cat together. She's just going to love this. And, and that, to me, it's experiences like me that, that speak of the power of photography. Yeah, in a sense, you're giving something back. And yeah. it can be as simple as just returning a photograph to somebody as well. It's, photographs are so valuable, you know, and we, really, we don't often... This is the same with music as well and poetry. And, you know, the times where we really listen to poetry, really listen, is when we're sitting at a funeral. You know, or a song's played for, for the person who's who's passed and we really listen to the words of that song and they stir something within us. And the photograph on the order of service, you know, it really, it's so important, it's so valuable. And it's a shame because those are the times where we're really alert to music and, and photographs and, and the spoken words. And another time that we're really alert to is when we're in love and we do anything for someone that we love, you know, we'll make mixtapes for them. I don't know if that's a thing anymore, a mixtape. Maybe this is a kind of kid of the 90s thing, but um, recording a tape and sending it to the person we love, you know, and it's it's so powerful, but in our day-to-day -day life, we kind of lose that um, value or other things become more important. Uh, but really, when it matters, people understand the power of photography. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering how how you perceive the relationship between photographer and subject in my opinion it's a bit of a false dichotomy and within the discourse this term subject has become a curious word for me and from my own experience more often than not I end up discovering myself as the subject and by this I mean that the making of an honest and respectful photograph whether that's a portrait or a landscape its production not only involves our experience or understanding of the world, but it also requires the photographer's submission to a world that becomes visible before our eyes. And these eyes with which we see the world, we neither asked for nor designed. And so, yeah, especially when it comes to making environmental portraits, it's all too often the face that looks back at us as well that assumes priority. And so how 
significant to your work is the phenomenon of the chance encounter? For my work, it's, it's almost everything. Uh, I, would say it's, I would say it's everything, but also there's another element to it. It's being in the right frame of mind to open yourself up to that chance encounter and to accept that gift. Um, so there's two different things there, but, but it's absolutely, you know, these images are collaborations. And you kind of alluded to that there, that sometimes the photographers, in some ways, the subject, or maybe we learn more about the photographer through the image. I don't know, but relationships in life are established when people open them up themselves up to one another. And these relationships that I form with people, they may be very brief, but sometimes they go on to last a much longer time. But photography, the camera, and I would say most importantly, they kind of they're having the right intentions. It offers a chance to bring people together rather than the rather than divide them. And again, that kind of comes back to community, and it comes back to humanity, to dialogue. Yeah, interpersonal dialogue. Absolutely. Which is clearly a very significant part of your process as well. Yeah, let's talk more about that democratic the democratic appeal of your work and that necessity of collaboration, because you keep on stressing the importance of community and getting involved in the lives of the people you photograph. And I'm now thinking of the photographer Chris Killip, who apparently waited six years to gain the trust of the people who feature in his sequel project. And so with reference to your own practice, can you tell us a bit more about the ways in which you build rapport and trust over time with the communities that you photograph? I suppose I'm repeating myself, but it comes back to this honest approach. So I don't hide who I am. I'm very sure of, of myself. Um, in some in some sense, you know, I, I I am a photographer. I don't mask that. I don't do sneaky photographs. I carry a very big camera on a big tripod and I walk with it. The other thing is I put the hours in. And so with the hours of walking, people see me and they wonder what I do. And I think that's an honest approach as well. And it sends, you know, we think about it's an honest day's work. What do we mean by that, an honest day's work? Well, it means that you've put in the time and you've put in the effort. And I think I've done that and I continue to do that with the project. But other things that I do to, I suppose, help with that report is that I share the work with those that I photograph. So whether that's an email with an attached file or prints or whether it's in exhibitions or books. And if someone really hated the shot that I sent them in an email, there's a good chance that I wouldn't publish it at all. You know, so I kind of relinquish that opportunity to keep that good relationship with the, the community and that, that trust. There's a few philosophers that I always consult as a photographer. And one of those philosophers is Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who described vision as an act of movement. And he has this essay, it's called I in Mind. And in that he, he emphasizes the relationship between the moving body and the visible world. And there's a quote. And he says, the visible world and the world of my motor projects are both total parts of the same being. And so how important is the process of moving, walking, wandering to you as a photographer in Govan Hill? Again, it's, it's really important. Years ago, before photography, I was a postman. And so walking was a big part of the job. You know, in fact, that's what they call your run. It's, it was called a walk. And the, that was a really important job for me because it gave me this kind of clear headspace. It gave me time to think. Um, and when you're out taking one step after another, when it's repetitive, something happens through that repetitive act where ideas can pop into the head. 
you know, you stop focusing on the job that you're doing, which can be a problem at times. But these ideas come into your head. And so one, I would say wondering got me wondering, in a sense, you know, so kind of wondering whether this job, the post was was all there was for me, you know, if I could do something else. Wondering if a photographic life, you know, what would it be like? And wondering what it'd be like to make this terrifying move of, of quitting my job as a postman. So I would say that wandering led to wondering and wondering led to action. And it's the same with my photography. It's the same thing today. You know, wondering, being open to what life may present as a gift before me. And then wondering, should I seize the opportunity in the moment? And then I suppose that motivated me to take risks as well. So it's one and the same thing. It's a kind of continuation of, of being in the post. I'm intrigued by the word gift that you've used a couple of times now in our conversation. Can you please elaborate on what this word gift means in the context of your practice? Well, I think it's a very interesting word. Yeah, I, I, kind, of, I kind of view most things as gifts. I, I don't really think that any of us deserve anything, really. You know, I think, you know, especially in the, in the context of photography and photographing people, I don't create these images by myself. You know, these are, we touched on it before, but this is a collaboration. And without that person agreeing and giving me their time, which is a gift, or being open to my instruction, you know, even if I have to ask them to move their head this way or, or stand this way, they're giving of themselves to me. In a sense, I'm giving to them, you know, um, the act of noticing can mean an awful lot to someone. You know, a lot of people walk through life and nobody notices them. So I, I think there's gifts and coming from both parties and collectively, you know, that just creates something that's just special that would be that wouldn't be there with just the individual. And so yeah, I do I view it as a gift. I view all these things as a gift. I view um What about view vision? Mature. The gift of vision. And if so, what does the giving? Well, vision's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's what we see through our eyes and what we see see through our heart. You know, and the and and then there's all the kind of subtle kind of unseen language you know that touches on body language as well so I, I think sight sight is absolutely a gift what does the giving I, th I think there's a creator um behind every every gift you know so so that creator yeah gives the gift of of sight i've i've said before that i view the world as a gift and what does the what does the giving i'm i'm unsure but I'm very comfortable um, resting in that mystery. Mm -hmm. And receiving it. Yeah, can we turn to the ethical imperative of the photographer and this enduring mm -hmm. problem of representation, which is coming up again and again? Yeah. You acknowledge Govan Hill as one of the poorest areas in Glasgow, if not Scotland. And some of your portraits have been made of people at their most vulnerable. And I'm thinking right now of the portrait of the man with the broken nose. Well, how do you feel about that particular image? Um, it's it's more important how how that person feels about the image. Yeah, I love it, <laughs> um, but I also know that he loves it as well. Um, when I met Vinny, Vinny was standing at a cash machine lifting some money. So you don't you don't approach people at a cash machine. You always give them a bit of time. And he moved away from the cash machine, and he was wearing one of these jackets that have the the goggles on the back of them. I don't know if you've seen them. But I think these jackets look cool. You know, I just, they're interesting jackets. So there's two things that I noticed in Vinny. 
One was the jacket with the goggles, and the other one, which I couldn't help but notice, was that his nose had been broken relatively recently. Not just, I don't think it was that day, because it looked like it was healing a little bit. So again, I'd, I just approached with honesty, and there was something about him that I thought looked amazing. Like a character. Do you know, it's that thing, it's like, what are you drawn to? I think about characters in a movie, right? So Brad Pitt. Right, I've never seen the film Meeting Joe Black, but I've seen a picture of Brad Pitt on it and he's, he looks so slick and I don't even know what the film's about, right? But that's not the best version of Brad Pitt for me. The best version of Brad Pitt is in Fight Club or Snatch. You know, when he's standing there with six pack and he's got that um, hat falling off his head and he's, he's a bit beat up and looking rough, but he looks fantastic. He looks cool. So I'm not looking at people thinking, oh, they look, Rough. I'm looking at people and thinking, wow, you look fantastic. And when I showed Vinny that shot, um, he absolutely loved it. And he, he he thought he looked like he was he was on the cover of GQ. My background, um, I, I shot a lot of fashion when I worked for the newspapers. I, I, I did the weekly magazine, the Saturday Supplement. So I photographed a lot of models and fashion. And it's the same thing. I'm trying to make those models and the clothes look the best that they can. And it's the same with the people that I notice. In the street, I want them to look the best that they can. So, so that that's kind of the situation with Vinny. But you touched on something there about this kind of um, deprived area, and I suppose accusations, you know, that, that come your way from maybe documenting a place like that. So, I mean, I do think about that. I think it's really important to, and I think it's important to ask yourself difficult questions. And when you ask yourself these questions about your intent, you know, you know why you're doing something. You've got your answer very honestly. And that's going to do one of two things. It's going to either change your approach or it's going to strengthen your resolve. I would say that, you know, it's very important to consider it's, it's not that just the photographer, it's not just the person in the photograph, but there is a responsibility towards the viewer because you make photographs to be seen. But the people who have put the most work in are the photographer and the person who's been photographed. So the viewer... And the people that know the most are the photographer and the person who's been photographed. So the viewer brings something to it. But sometimes I think that people see what they want to see. And often that speaks more about their own bias or their own judgment. So this project is... It's absolutely, absolutely that's, not, that's a great point, yeah. Right. Well, so this project, just in terms of... It's absolutely not about poverty. And I would suggest, I would argue that if people see poverty in, in my images, I, I would hope they'd maybe look a little bit closer. And I understand that the backdrop of the place, you know, is a place that um, there's a deprivation, there's no doubt about it, and there's a kind of curtain of difficult times hangs behind some of those portraits. But they're absolutely not the focus. You know, these are, these are portraits of strength in difficult circumstance sometimes. These are portraits of people who understand who they are and people who are not afraid to confront the world with their gaze. They're portraits of diversity. They're, they're not portraits calling for pity. And I just, in many ways, you know, I, I kind of ask the viewer just, I suppose with the eye contact that I have in most of my, my portraits, it's really just to confront the viewer and, that, and get them to think and just ask questions, maybe small questions that just what's it like to be in that person's shoes? And those shoes aren't always, sometimes it's not bare feet. You know, when, when I think about this project, right, there's absolutely people who are photographed who have less money than me, right? But at the same time, there's, I would say the majority of people in that project have a, an awful lot more money than me. 
so I'm not looking at, at this with this kind of vision of trying to show the, the tough times. It, it's a it's a project about solidarity. It's a project about being together. Humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I just don't see that in it. And maybe, oh, who knows, maybe my vision is different. And sometimes it's good to step away from your work, you know, and just, and I think it is important to take other people's considerations into view, but you can't allow the critics to stop you doing the thing that you feel important about. Because as a photographer, you're a creative. A critic is destructive. You will always have your critics. That's it. You can't please the entire world, no. Nor should you desire to. I think it's good to consider, but when it comes to critics, critics generally break things down, tear things apart. That's not for me. I'm here to build something. I'm here. A creative does something different. So that's okay. Critics can say what they want. I don't know. I've not heard many comments like that, but as the project grows, I know it will come. Well, I think it's also important to note that it's precise, precisely in that naked face of another that we ourselves come face to face with our, with that mortality, that humanness that makes us all who we are. And only through that do we gain an appreciation of the ethical responsibility that we must answer to as photographers. But at the same time, the image of human suffering is always at risk of being stereotyped, simplified, exploited by photographers to provoke a particular emotional response from the viewer? I think times are changing. I think we're definitely more considerate of ethics and have to be. And I think that's a good thing. I think that, um, you know, I, I started this project just, just going, just kind of switching back to my project because I have had comments written about the work being gritty, you know, and, and maybe that's what why people kind of jump to this idea that, it's, that there's poverty involved and all of that but you know I photograph in black and white film and traditionally in photojournalism back when a lot of those stories these kind of stories where it wasn't so easy to travel so photographers were going into places and bringing stories out and black and white film and photojournalism at that time was seen as the only serious only serious photographers which you know that's what you shot in black and white and maybe there's a little bit of of that you know because these photographers were trying to produce images that were evocative and provoked a reaction and perhaps you know that people see that in my work you know the black and white the, the grain of triax film or or ilford film and and they maybe see that and maybe that's where why there's that link but at the same time you know when you think of black and white film and black and white photography of the 20s there's there's the other side where you know the hollywood portraits yusuf karsh would be using hollywood lighting and it'd be black and white with strong shadows a lot of depth but those portraits were made to flatter and to elevate an individual. So maybe my work lies in between there somewhere because my intention is definitely to to elevate. You know, even the my camera is always sits below eye level, you know, so the person is always above me. That's in a physical sense, the person's above me, but also the way I consider that person as well, you know, as being above me. It has, you know, the very heavy shadows have a set, have have connotations of 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 suffering, deprivation, in in the context, and especially in the context of Govan Hill. I just don't, I just don't see that. And I suppose the ins- inspirations of mine at the time when I was at college were, were photographers like David Bailey and Albert Watson. And when you look at their work of well-known people, it's the light is very sculpted, very controlled, and has a huge amount of contrast. But you wouldn't look at those images and, and think those are images of deprivation. But they're certainly full of deep shadow. 
And that what that shadow does, it shapes the face, it, it brings out the cheekbones, and dark shadow highlights the highlights more. You know, it gives that contrast. So in many ways, you know, when I use light, I tend to photograph in the shade, you know, so it tends to be a little bit dull because I get consistency there. But I do, I'm very aware of light and I am trying to present the best person, the, the best vision of this person that I can. And I think that comes from those influences like like Watson. Karsh wasn't an influence, but certainly those kind of, um, you can see how that work goes through to Watson's work uh, and David Bailey's. And I think it's more, that's where I'm coming from more than a dark shadow kind of being a kind of signifier of gloom. You know, I just see it as, as contrast that emphasises the light. I'm governed a little bit by the Glasgow weather, which tends to be a little bit dull. I also photograph in the shade. And because I've got heavy camera, you can, I can't really drop below a sixtieth of a second. So I'm usually wide open with the aperture. But the aperture is wide open for the camera that I use is maybe f3.5 maximum. And so... Again, circumstance dictates that a little bit, but you know, I would if it was a headshot, if I identified that the face of that person was the kind of the thing that I really responded to in the first place, then I'd photograph a headshot and generally I would focus on the eyes and let the, the ears go slightly out of focus because I want the viewer to look straight into that person's eyes. And so focus is important, but some some of those decisions tend to be just out of circumstance. And what is it about the eyes? What do they what do they signify to you? I, I don't know. You know, people say people say win, window of the soul. Yeah, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? I mean, Platon he sees more in the hands. You know, the photographer Platon really he doesn't bother about the eyes being out of focus because he focuses on the hands and he thinks the hands have an awful lot to say about a person. But it it depends. It depends on the person, you know, and someone might have incredible eyes. And I'll absolutely, if that's the thing that's drawn me, then I absolutely have to use every camera technique that I have to emphasize that. But if it's not the eyes that drew me, maybe maybe it's a full length shot, you know, and, and it's what they're wearing, then I'll use an aperture like F8, you know, just to so we can look at the, the writing on the badge that the person's wearing or, or something like that. But you do have a photograph of a hand, a butcher's hand with a chainmail glove on, which is a very yeah. interesting photograph. And in some ways, I wish that you'd photographed that in colour. Mm -hmm. Same here, because it had a bit of blood on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I actually don't think that we should reject images if the eyes are out of focus. I have, I use a Mamiya 7, so it's a rangefinder, and it's not an SLR. So you do have sometimes a problem with that close focus. Yeah, I don't, I've had many portraits where the eyes are, are not in focus. They're almost in focus, for example, but they're not. Perhaps it was a time when that really bothered me. But does the, does the painter worry that if he's using too much texture in a face, for example? I don't think depends so. Depends on the painter. Well, depends on the painter. You know, I, and the answer always depends. And it's the same. I'm with you on that. I, I agree 100% that the image does not have to be in focus. And in many cases, an image that's out of focus gives a painterly quality or your response to it's different. You know, there's a more poetic feel to the image than this very pin-sharp kind of, um, I don't know the word for it, but just that kind of pin-sharp image. So I agree with you, but it's something that I found hard to shake off because working for newspapers and magazines, you know, I do have images that are not perfectly in focus. 
that I've got another one of the same image beside it, but just the movement of the head or there's something about it that the one that's not in focus is the shot. And I'll go for that 100%. I'll go with my heart more than than my eyes in, in that occasion. But perhaps it's more of a market standard then, more than anything. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to break that. I wanted to talk to you about the significance of empathy in your photographs. I know as a photographer myself, working with people, making portraits of people, that the tradition of environmental portraiture and portraiture in general presupposes uh, the photographer's proximity to the subject, to the person who faces the camera. I also realised the importance of that interpersonal dialogue that we've spoken about. But nevertheless, if we want to make good environmental portraits, the act of portraiture must remain an event that allows the person on the other side of the camera with the distance to be themselves. It must provide them with the space to be who they feel themselves to be. And the whole point or the whole essence of the environmental portrait is to offer an understanding of that person within the environment in which we encounter them. And so we may, of course, understand the face of another in the context of their environment. Yet meanwhile, we will never encounter another person as they're immediately present and available to themselves. And what I mean by that is the photographer and the subject's life are completely non-interchangeable. And in a sense, we are nearer to the furthest stars as photographers than we are to being the persons that we photograph and who remain at arm's reach. We may be as, as far away as, as distant stars from, from getting a true reflection of that individual. But by trying and by approaching and by opening ourselves up, we, we definitely get that bit closer. I think that a photograph, it can never capture the complexity and, and multiple facets of an individual, but it is a way to communicate. And I think it is possible to communicate ineffectively. You know, I think pure communication uh, is an issue that causes problems in humanity, that coupled with fear. But my aim is to try and produce images that do communicate or reveal something about that person. And maybe that something is something that the person wants to share, because we mentioned it before, it's a collaboration. So I don't know, I just think that, um, you know, when we think of empathy, that's something we've spoken a lot about tonight. You know, empathy is about listening. And I think a photograph can trigger that kind of quiet opportunity where you're making space to listen to, to these questions, these internal questions. And hopefully by looking at a photograph and then asking ourselves questions, then we do draw closer to the person. But when I say the, the human race, you know, in the larger sense, being human is so much deeper than, than what we see in the surface. So it's almost impossible to capture a person. And, and that word capture, you know, why would you want to capture any, anyone or anything? So I think some photographs are more effective at drawing closer to people than others, or, or some photographs are more effective when it comes to triggering these internal questions. Um, and that, I suppose that's the desire of the photographer, the aim, produce images that, that connect. So in a way, photography for you is, is a practice of letting go. Yeah, in some ways. And letting things be themselves. Yep, but again, it's a collaboration. And so, you know, it's that way when you look at a photograph, how much of, you look at a portrait, you know, sometimes you're looking at a portrait of the photographer as well. And so the unseen person is actually seen within the face of that other individual. Uh, sometimes that's literally true. You know, I, I used to photograph a lot 
abroad and um, I would wear a white T-shirt. And what the white T-shirt did was it, it acted as a reflector. So I didn't have to hold a reflector. In the eyes of that person, you would see me or you would see the photographer. You would see the photographer uh, within, the, within the eyes of the person. So sometimes it's, it's physical, but in many ways it's not. It's just, yeah, the photographer's also present in that photograph or in that face. Absolutely. The photographer is the non-visible shadow in a way. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is really interesting to consider. Yeah, the photographer is latent in the image, mm -hmm. to use a photographic term. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all these questions are returning me to a philosopher called Emmanuel Levinas, who described the naked face of another as that visual phenomenon which surpasses any attempt at definition. And it's precisely what you're saying. We shouldn't attempt to capture someone in that sense. Perhaps that's the ethical standard of the environmental portrait itself. Mm -hmm is that when you are photographing someone in their environment, according to a collaboration between photographer and subject, it's, it is that act which gives the subject the space to be themselves. And it's, it is in that face-to-face -face encounter that we discover the responsibility for each other that makes us all human. And Levinas spoke about how this responsibility is without origin. And there's a real sense in which it's more ancient than the existence that we strive to understand through the pictures that we make as photographers. And so it's as if we were already answerable to each other before the world was made visible to us. But if our understanding of another is indeed without end, do you think it is possible as a photographer to capture the face of another without taking away something of their humanity? Oh, yeah. You can add to the sense of humanity. It comes down to intent, you know, how you photograph choices you make, body language, your conversation, all of that is an act of humanity in a sense. And yeah, I, yeah, I think it's very possible not to strip someone of that. I think it, you've got to be very sensitive to it, but it's, of course it's possible. It, sometimes it's the experience itself. Okay, so we're not, we're not looking at the image here at this point, but the experience. So we spoke a little bit before about, you know, people walking through life and nobody noticing them. And that happens to too many people. You know, so just that act of stopping, having a conversation, someone being interested in you, it can lift the person. It can, it can absolutely mean the world to it. It can make their day. I know that. So photography now becomes an act of communion in a sense. Yeah. With others and ultimately the world. Yeah, it has that power. Yeah, it's clear that photography for you is a way of bringing together an understanding of the world, a way of entering into communion with another person in an honest and dignified way. And with that in mind, the camera then becomes a point of contact with the world. It's again that paradox that it's a it can be a machine of separation, but it can also be that point of contact, a way of focusing on developing an understanding of community of being in community, of a life in common. And that's, again, what I find so interesting about the way you think about photography, because these themes are present in my work too. And they're so important, especially in an age of proliferating suspicions and competing tribalisms. It's really important to, to try and find a language that keeps us open to other ways of seeing and other ways of being and other ways of thinking. And finding the space to accommodate those understandings and those perspectives. And 
I think in your work, that place of understanding is the street, which again represents civic life, communal life, and all the levels that that is made up of. You've spoken about the range of different people that you've met. You know, the street represents a common ground. Mm -hmm. It's a democratic space. It's a public space. It's literally a crossroads as well. And it's going back to that question that I asked at the beginning, the importance of representing Govan Hill as a, as a meeting place between different ways of seeing. And so it's clear that Govan Hill becomes this place where our perspective merges with the horizon of another. You know, it's that site of an encounter for you. So yeah, I just, I'm, I'm really inspired by that, the way that you approach that area in that, in that way. The motif of the other as a being whose understanding is infinite can also be found in the Scottish writer Nan Shepherd, who said in her book, The Living Mountain, knowing another is endless. The thing to be known grows with the knowing. And so as you continue with this project, I'd like to ask you, how, how has your understanding of Govan Hill grown as you move forward? In terms of my understanding of Govan Hill, the place, I don't know, you know, I'm not a historian. So my actual understanding of the place is limited and I don't have a real desire to go through the history of the place. It's not what matters to me. I, I see it, we're all growing. You know, you, you spoke about growth in, in the quote from, uh, was it Nan, Nan Shepherd about the thing to be known grows with the knowing. We shouldn't expect everybody to have all the answers right away. And living in a place like Govan Hill allows people to grow and branch out. And, and for, for me, that's that's how I see Govan Hill. You know, I, I see it as a way of understanding the wider world and to share that viewpoint with others. You know, what I've discovered from opening myself up to cultures and um, nationalities that perhaps I wouldn't have before. And I find it's, it enriches your life. So if Govan Hill represents that or gave me that opportunity to embrace rather than just accept then again we'll use the word it's a gift and i would say that this project for me is 100 percent. it's been part of my growth in every way it's been a gift that's photography's been a gift that's played a, a part of my own formation and so and, and i think that when you understand the world as a gift the way that you photograph it completely changes and the way that you understand it completely changes and there is a certain grace in photography and you do have to open yourself to that. And it's not about sticking your ideas all over the world at all for me as a photographer myself. And we've spoken about this before, that photography for me is a discipline of understanding. It's not something through which I try and mold the world into how I expect it to be or how I think it ought to be. It's not about that at all for me. It's about being able to understand the world a little bit more intimately so that we might find common ground and a peace with one another and a space where everyone has the opportunity to express, themsel express themselves as they wish to be seen and heard. And again, going back to your environmental portraits, the streets of Govan Hill, for you, are that place. Yeah. That democratic space. Yeah, whilst, I'm just thinking that whilst Govan Hill might be perceived as one of the poorest places in Scotland, that's not really what motivates your project at all. At least that's no. what's become clear to me during our conversations. And what you're really trying to pre present, I think, is, is, a, is an image of, of the citizen, of the, 
of the people who make up society, of the people who contribute to society, and you give these voices a certain face and a name by photographing them. Yeah. In some ways, the work is very political, but in other ways, it's, it's not a work of activism at all. No. It's, it's quiet. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit like you spoke about your photography. You're not, you're not preaching with this. You're not, or you're not trying to tell, to get people to think the same way as you. It's about questions. You know, you want people to think for themselves. Uh, what's your plans for this project then, Govan Hill, the Govan Hill project? So the dream was, for me, was to exhibit the work in a place called Street Level Photoworks in Glasgow. Um, that's the exhibition space that, while I was at college, that I just, it, it was, for me, it was everything. One of the best photography spaces in Scotland. And so I've been offered an exhibition there. So in October... 2023, I'm going to have an exhibition that will last until the end of December. And hopefully, I'll have a book of the work as well at the same time. All right, great. Yeah, it's been a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed this. And I'd, I'd love to know how the project develops. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing the book as well. Thanks very much, Peter. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. Or as they say in Finnish, Kitos for tuning into this first episode of The Land Behind. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Simon as much as I did speaking with him. If you'd like to see Simon's work, you can find him on Instagram at smurf77. Within the next few weeks, I plan to speak with some really interesting guests, so please consider clicking the follow button if you'd like to stay notified of future episodes. In the meantime, you can keep up with my own work by visiting my website at peterholidayphoto.com that's with two L's I'm also active on Instagram so if you feel like reaching out and saying hello I'd be very glad to hear from you so until next time thanks again from me Peter Holiday.